The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take our Bibles, if you would. And I'm glad uh, to see that some of you took to heart what I said this morning, that all day long is the Lord's day, and uh, you decided to come back. So we want to take another look at this passage in Isaiah chapter 42. And I want to to, uh, complete the Christmas message that I began this morning. Uh, This is uh, the second part of the message, which is something I don't think that I ever do, and that's to preach it two-part sermon on the same day, but I have to finish this message because next Sunday's after Christmas, so I wanted to finish it before Christmas. And there's also an advantage to doing this. You're not going to need a real long review to get back into the flow of the message, and uh, so that helps us. And what I really want to do with this text as we look at Isaiah 42 is I I wanted to bring you a fully Christological message. So we are focusing on what's said here about our Lord Jesus Christ, from this Old Testament prophecy. So if you look again at uh, chapter 42 in Isaiah, let's read these verses once more. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he has set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth bread unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Most of you were here this morning, so as I said, I don't need to go into lengthy introductions, and I don't need to perhaps repeat the whole story behind why this message is called Chosen, And uh, just remember, it's not frozen, it is chosen. And our little graphic that we have was just to entertain you a little bit to get us uh, fully perhaps into the message. But we are looking at this important passage in Isaiah that's one of the servant songs. Uh, There are four of these songs that are in this book, and each of them is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the promised Messiah. And this really, I think, is a great Christmas text for us because that's what Christmas is all about. It's about Jesus who is the Messiah. A Messiah is the same as Christ. Both of those names are names that stand for the one who has been appointed by God. God promised that he would send a deliverer to his people, not just to bring them out of physical bondage that they were in, but also to bring them out of the captivity, the bondage of sin and death in their lives. Now, in the message this morning, we noted the context of the writing, and that is that Israel was in terrible idolatry. 
They were following false prophets of heathen gods, and they relied upon them instead of the one true God who was the only one who could actually bring them out of that terrible spiritual condition that they were in. And every time that you look in the Scripture and you find physical oppression for Israel, you can always be sure of this, that there is a spiritual reason that lies behind that oppression. And the inability of the nation to help themselves physically is really emblematic of what it's like for every single person in the world who does not have the ability to help themselves spiritually. I mean, what we do every single day of our lives is to plunge deeper and deeper into the depths of our depravity. We simply do not have a way of helping ourselves. Well, this is what Israel was like in the time that Isaiah writes. They were very deep in the darkness, and it was even worse at the beginning of the first century A.D., And it was to a very spiritually dark world that Christ came. And still today, the world hasn't improved. After all these these years of our technological advances, after all the years of our social development, the human heart is still sick. It hasn't hasn't, uh, improved in at all. It's just as black as it ever was. And what we keep doing is exploring the depths of our depravity. And as I wrote in a bulletin article just uh, a few weeks ago, there is no limit. There there is no bottom to the depths of our depravity. We can just keep getting worse and worse. And in Isaiah's time, there wasn't any recovery for Israel. None of the idols that they had, none of the prophets of those idols could help them. Uh, The best that they could offer them was nothing. And you know you're in very bad shape when the very best that you can get is nothing. And likewise, there wasn't anybody when Christ came. There was no godly prophet like Isaiah that could give them the true word of the living God. Now, although we can't see America in prophecy, we don't have any clear distinctions about America in prophecy, I don't think it's too difficult for us to relate the condition of the world, what the world was like when Christ came, to what we see in our world today. We're a nation that once believed in God. I don't think there's any doubt that our forefathers, those first pilgrims that came to this country, they understood and they believed in the Christ of the Bible. But now our nation that was once a beacon for the gospel of Christ has actually fallen into the godlessness of the rest of the world. Uh, Our president, our congress, and, and our people are now more characterized by the idolatry of self and of materialism than we are of people who who actually do believe in the Christ or the God of the Bible. Uh, Few today stand as we did a generation ago when people did believe that the Bible was the infallible word of God. And it's in that kind of an atmosphere of despair that Jesus came. The Messiah came to relieve his people. Now, first he came to the Jews, and the hope that he brought was actually intended for all the people of the world. Now, as, as, as Paul said, that it was necessary first for Christ to come to the Jews and to give the gospel to them, and it was his purpose to preach to the Jews also first, but their failure to believe in Christ became the opening up of the way for the Gentiles, and now salvation was brought to them. In our text here, we see that it's God Almighty who tells us that we are to behold his Son. And we look here in verse number 5, where 
The strongest word for God is used in the Hebrew, as I mentioned this morning, it's the word El, El or E-L, the Almighty God. And the Almighty God says for us to behold, to look upon the one who is the only one who can cure us from the condition that we're in, from this condition of despair. Now first, just very briefly reviewing, he said, behold my servant. He is a servant, and that means that he's fully surrendered to the Father. And that's very important because it tells us that that he was determined that he would carry out the Father's plan. He was not going to deviate in any way from that divine task. And God also said that I'm going to uphold him. I'm going to give him everything that he needs in order to make sure that he gets where he's supposed to be. I will sustain him, and I will keep him. I I will make sure that the redemption that has been promised will be accomplished. Then next, God said, behold, my selected. And that's really the theme of the message. He is God's choice. He is the one that is appointed by God. He is the elect, the one ordained from the foundation of the world. God chose him because he knew his character. Now, if you think about what it was like for Jesus and God the Father throughout all eternity in the past, that there was never any disagreement between them. They always were in perfect accord with one another. They had a perfect relationship, and God knew what he was getting when he chose his own son to come into this world. God chose him because he was in every way qualified to be the Savior. And God delighted in him, just as we read in verse number 1. He satisfied the Father, and the Father expressed that satisfaction by audibly speaking from heaven. And he said in his own words, quoted right here from Isaiah, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If God delights in him, how could anyone ever be disappointed in him? There's a songwriter that wrote, I am satisfied with Jesus. And I know that that song was written in good conscience. But the words of that song can almost be considered inane. How could we not be satisfied with Jesus? He satisfied Almighty God. And if he satisfied God, who can't he satisfy? Well, we should mark this well, that God chose him. That doesn't mean that we would choose him. We're much different than God. We don't see the way things the way that God sees them. So we wouldn't choose him. Though he is so lovely, though he is perfect, though he is a loving Savior, he is a compassionate Savior, we would not choose him. Jesus said, ye will not come to me. I was just reading something the other day, um, a, a preacher who said, well, that proves to us that salvation is a matter of will. Jesus said, you will not come to me. And he thought that he made a good point for his own side. But what he's actually saying, yes, this is our will. We will not choose him. Probably the best argument I could have made for my own position. We will not choose him. And that shows you how different is the thinking of God and man. It's not until our stubborn will has been conquered by the grace of God. It's not until the Holy Spirit regenerates us and brings us to life that the Holy Spirit makes us or we understand how that Jesus Christ is desirable. Only the Holy Spirit can open up our eyes and to make us understand his beauty. Only then can you understand why God delights in him. Well, those are two of the areas that we covered this morning. But we have so much more in the passage. And just to further demonstrate that Jesus was the perfect choice for Christmas, God says, 
thirdly, behold his spirit. I have put my spirit upon him. His spirit is God's spirit. He was born in the flesh. As a man, he was like us. He was flesh and blood just like us. But the spirit of Jesus was different. He didn't have the spirit of man. He had the spirit of God. And in fact, he had the spirit of God in all of its fullness. I want you to notice something interesting in the 11th chapter of Isaiah. Uh, One of the things that I really like to do is to compare Old Testament Scripture with the New. And so if you look back in Isaiah 11, verse number 2, it says something here very special about the Spirit of Christ. Now, if you look at verses 1 and 2 in that 11th chapter, it says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Well, let's take just a minute to count those. Let's just count those, and you can underline these in your Bible. Number one, he says that the spirit of the Lord is in him. Number two, the spirit of wisdom. Thirdly, the spirit of understanding. Fourthly, the spirit of counsel. Fifthly, the spirit of might. Number six, the spirit of knowledge. And number seven, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Now, there you have seven characteristics of the spirit. The number seven in Scripture often, or it does, it is a number of completion. Often, it's a number of perfection. And Jesus has the complete measure of the spirit. Now, by way of comparison, let's turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1, and uh, you know how Revelation begins. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all about Christ. It's actually the opening up of Christ in, in all of His splendor and His glory. And if you'll notice here what John wrote in verse number 4 in chapter 1, he said, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. There's a question that's always asked when you study Revelation. What does the Bible mean when it talks about these seven spirits that are before the throne? And almost invariably, somebody will ask the question, does that mean that there are seven Holy Spirits? Well, no, there's only one Holy Spirit, but there are seven works that are in the Holy Spirit that are the completeness of Him. It's the completeness of His work. And Isaiah 11, verse number 2, tells us each of those works. Now, if you look over in Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 1, it says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God. Who is it that has the seven spirits of God? Well, if you have a red-letter Bible, it's an easy one for you. If you don't have a red-letter Bible, it's still easy because the one that's speaking here is the Lord Jesus Christ. This book of Revelation is the revelation of him. And what this tells us, or he is the one that's spoken of in Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. So it's Christ himself who is the one that has the seven spirits of God. And that's because God said that he was going to give him his spirit without measure. In John 3, 34, For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. 
And you might think, well, why is that so important? Well, it takes us back to another thought that God surveyed the the landscape of humanity and he found that there was no one that had the perfection that he required. And back in verse 28 of Isaiah 41, For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counselor, that when I asked of them could answer a word. And we look at that and we say, well, what do you mean? I mean, aren't there some people that have God's Spirit? We, we know that God puts His Spirit into the righteous. We've read in the Old Testament that there were many times that it says the Spirit of God came on someone. Sometimes God reached down and He empowered men to do His work. So why couldn't God just use men? Why not Isaiah? Isaiah ranks up there with Moses as one of the top prophets in the Old Testament. Why not Isaiah? Why didn't God use him to do this? And and why not Moses himself? Moses, the Bible says, is the only prophet that God spoke to face by face, face to face. So why not Moses? Well, the reason for that is because they were only men. The Holy Spirit could work through men only in a limited way. They were sinful men. And Jesus was not sinful. He wasn't just a man. He was also the God-man. So that every ounce of him was filled with the divine spirit. Every recess of his mind was a place where the Holy Spirit could go. And the Holy Spirit filled him all. And so as a man, Jesus was given the fullness of God. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So God said, behold his spirit. He's possessed with the seven. He is the perfection of the Holy Spirit. And what that shows us is that God uh, looks to Jesus and tells us that he meets every expectation. Satisfied with Jesus? Well, I would think so. God said, my spirit is in him. Well, next, God says, behold his soundness. He shall bring forth judgment. Now, at the end of verse number 3, God said, He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. That means that His judgment is sound, that He judges according to truth. Well, how does He do that? Well, He can only do that because He's perfectly sound in judgment itself. He judges right according to what's right because He is right. He, he, is, he is the righteous one. He's the only righteous one. He has to be right. And so in order for him to bring justice to the nations, he must be right himself. Now, he's certainly not a corrupt judge. And we have lots of problems with corrupt judges, don't we? Our Supreme Court is corrupt. And I don't mean that they take bribes or they're intentionally dishonest, although they might do both. But what I mean is their judgment isn't perfect. The perfect standard of justice is the Word of God, isn't it? And so if the Supreme Court was not corrupt, then every decision that they make would be handed down in compliance with God's Word, wouldn't it? That's what it would take not to be corrupt. Well, sometimes judges are are hampered with unjust laws or maybe misunderstanding of laws, and judges may base their decisions on laws that have been made by fallible men. And so sometimes we find that judges are actually dealing with lesser of evils. They're imperfect men, men that are judging by imperfect laws. But Christ is so much different than this because he is the perfect man who judges according to the perfect law. He brings righteousness and justice into the courtroom of the nations because he qualifies as the perfect judge administering justice from laws that he understands perfectly. 
because he wrote the law. Now, judges today, our Supreme Court today, argues over things like, what is the intent? What was the founders' original intent in the, con in the Constitution when they made a law? And they argue back and forth with each other. Well, what is the real intent? Well, you never have to worry about that with Christ. There's no guesswork with him because he is the founder. And he's the one who wrote the law, so he perfectly knows what the intent of his law is. And so you're never going to accuse him that he doesn't know how to judge according to law. And when you stand in his courtroom, there's not a lawyer that's needed. There's not a lawyer that's going to plead for things that the judge might not have considered. And that's why there aren't any lawyers in God's courtroom. And who knows, maybe there's not any lawyers in heaven either. But in God's courtroom, there are no lawyers needed. Uh, I, I can tell you that if I'm to be judged, this is the judge that I want. I want a judge who never makes a mistake. And I don't have to worry about having a defense lawyer in God's courtroom because he's already persuaded by his own law. He knows what he's going to do. He already knows everything about me. And I'm happy that he's my judge because I know Christ. I know what he's promised. I know that he's satisfied every transgression that I've made against him. But on the other hand, if you don't know him, he's not the judge that you want. You want another judge. Because you might find a judge who could make a mistake. You might find a judge that might have some lenience on you. But when you come to this judge, there is nothing but destruction. He's the one that they would call the hanging judge. You don't come before this judge and expect to get anything but justice because he's going to apply the law to its fullest extent. And that's what a judge does. He judges righteously. Isaiah 28:17 says... Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place. And that means that everything is going to be judged by God's perfect law. Anything that doesn't meet that law will be swept away. A righteous judge never sweeps away the righteous law. What he does is apply it. And that means that the guilty is never going to go free. And so the only way that you can ever escape the full penalty of God's law is for Christ to become your surety. Now that takes us back to the beginning to another thought that you, you can't escape sin's penalty. There isn't anybody that can go free from the captivity of sin. Only Christ can help you to do that because he satisfied God's justice. He took the penalty of the law and he justified you by faith in him. And we notice here by reading the text that we would certainly think that the nations expect justice and they'll get it. As the people of God, we often wonder, is there no satisfaction? I mean, there, there are so many people that hate us. There are people that mistreat us. Uh, Jesus said that you're going to experience this through your life. There's nobody that's going to like you. He said, because of me. They hated me. They're going to hate you. And so we sit back and we think, well, isn't there some justice in the world? Isn't there going to be retribution? Isn't this all going to be taken care of someday? As you look at Old Te or rather New Testament saints in the tribulation time, they fully expect that God's going to give them justice. In Revelation 6 verse 10, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? This is something that we never have to fear. That justice is coming. Isaiah 42 
looks forward to Christmas. But just as is typical with many Old Testament prophecies, there is a near fulfillment and there is a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment here would be the first advent of Christ, that when he came in that first advent, he was different from the way that it'll be in the second advent. And so actually the passage does have more of a view towards that second advent and the millennial kingdom than it does the first. And what we see in that is that Christ is going to bring his justice to the earth. He's going to bring his vengeance to the earth. He's going to avenge his own death and the deaths of his people. He was crucified by wicked men the first time, but when he comes the second time, what he's going to do is bring his judgment with him, and he's going to hold their feet to the fire, all of those that have, have harmed his own people and him. He's there going to meet this judge face to face. In Matthew 24, it says, The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, I pity people that don't understand that they have to face God's law. I was listening to a preacher this morning before I came to church, and he was extolling the virtues of people that don't preach hell, that don't tell people the bad side, that don't tell people that God is anything other than a God of love. Jesus says he's going to have his vengeance. People are going to be brought to the law. That's inevitable. And the only way that we're going to escape the law is that Christ has taken the law's penalty for us. So God says, behold his soundness. He brings righteous judgment. Now what I've just said might seem to be a little bit incongruous with what comes next. Because next God says, behold his serenity. Verse 40. Or chapter 42 and verse 2, He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. The demeanor of Christ in the first advent was truly remarkable. Very, very remarkable. And here, here is another reason why God chose Christ and not me or you. And that's because... There's none of us that could keep our head with the kind of power that Christ had. None of us could keep our head with the abilities that Christ had. We would always use it against our enemies. None of us could have his power and not avoid the cross. We would have had the power to do that. None of us would allow ourselves to be, to be beaten and tortured and all of that to happen to us without calling down fire on our accusers. I mean, you just think about it. Even the holy apostles wouldn't, didn't think any differently. Do you remember James and John that wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume Samaritans? And they wanted to do it for far less offenses than anything that we've done. They were just unhappy with the inhospitability uh, in, in, uh, of... Is that the right word? They were inhospitable. That's what I'm trying to say. The Samaritans, they wouldn't give them food. They didn't supply them bread. So they said, well, let's call down fire from heaven to destroy them. Now, in their defense, we can say that later on they began to understand Christ and they did understand about how he felt about such things as this and the love and compassion that he did have. And so they learned when they were beaten and tortured not to retaliate. But that was the only complaint that they had then was that inhospitality 
in hospitality of those Samaritans. But we notice the, the peacefulness of Christ's ministry. Do the scriptures ever indicate that Jesus raised his voice? That he got into shouting matches with the scribes and Pharisees? You know, I've been in plenty of arguments over doctrine, and I can get frustrated sometimes in Bible discussions, and it seems like my blood pressure just gets too high and I'm about ready to pop. And that's a warning to you. <laughs> you come into my office and disagree with me, I'll throw books at you. Well, I might not really do that, but uh, in my old age, I'm calmed down a little bit, so I can disagree with you civilly, and I can uh, excuse your hard-headedness when you don't agree with me. But I will say this. Um, the other day, I, I had some Mormons that, that came to my door, and I, I usually don't care to engage Mormons because I think it's a waste of time. But this time, I, I went to the door. I, I'd been studying for a message, and they interrupted me. And so I went to the door with my usual evangelistic demeanor. And the first thing that I said to them, and this, this is true, this is exactly what I said. I said, ah, oh, Mormons, I'm not buying what you're selling. You're going to hell. <laughs> and our conversation didn't get much higher than that. And so we stood at the door there discussing things, and, and my voice was raised. And I know that my neighbors had to be wondering, what in the world is going on over there? Let me tell you how to deal with Mormons. Ask questions. Just keep asking them questions. And if you know anything at all, don't let them talk. Just keep asking questions. And if you know anything at all, they're soon going to cross themselves up and they'll start to defeat their own arguments. Now, someday I'll tell you the whole story of what took place there at the door. But before we were through, they were arguing for the ignorance of Joseph Smith. And, uh, you know, that, it's always comforting to know that you're following a lunatic. But they'll do that. They don't have any defense when you know what you're talking about. But anyway, back to this subject. This is about Christ, and Mormons would do well to listen to this kind of thing because they don't know anything about him. But Jesus never got into heated arguments. What he did, he stated his position, and then he calmly spoke the truth, and then he moved on. And people just marveled at the sweetness of the words that fell from his lips. Even when he was beaten, he didn't speak a word in anger. And have you noticed this about his ministry? He didn't call for a revolt. There wasn't any spirit of revolution in him. That's what the disciples wanted. That's why they were always asking questions about the kingdom. They wanted to see something happen. And if it meant overthrowing the Roman government, that was fine. Jesus even chose one of his disciples who was known as Simon the Zealot. And zealots were people, a political party that wanted to overthrow the Roman government. But there wasn't any room for that in, in Jesus' ministry. There was no aggression in his ministry. When he was in the garden, Peter wanted to defend him. And Jesus reached out and healed the man that Peter struck. There just wasn't a place for it. Now, if you look at the last part of verse number 2, it says, He shall not cause his voice to be heard in the street. Well, what does that mean? Well, some say that it means that when Jesus was in the house that he didn't raise his voice loudly enough to be heard in the street. And when I was talking to those Mormons, you could hear my voice maybe two or three blocks away. I don't know. You know, I think that's an interesting interpretation that somebody says, well, he wouldn't raise his voice loud enough to be heard in the street. And that really doesn't square very well with fire-breathing, shouting, screaming, pulpit-pounding fundamental Baptists. I mean, you do know this, that bad sermons or bad points are made better if you scream them and pound the pulpit. 
That's homiletics 101. Did you know that? But I think this is interesting, uh, that interpretation, but I don't think that's what it means. Did you ever read in the scriptures where the disciples entered into town with a brass band and told everybody that Jesus was coming? Did you ever see them passing out flyers and putting up billboards for the revival campaigns of Jesus of Nazareth? Did you ever read in Scripture that when Jesus entered the room that there was a plant of disciples that would begin to clap for him and stand up for an ovation? Not Jesus. Preachers love that stuff, but not Jesus. When you think of Matthew 24 and 25, did you ever read about a PR campaign for Jesus' prophecy crusade? No, Jesus was low-key. The crowd sought him out. Numerous times he, he would preach and he would heal. And remember what he would say to people? Keep it quiet. Don't tell anybody about this. That never worked. They always did. But he didn't, he didn't push it. He didn't encourage it. That was his character. He was always humble. He was always serene. There were no publications, no Baptist papers with announcements of the big preachers at his conference. You know, I, I think that God chose Christ because he focused on being the Messiah, not marketing his name. And he had a name that was like no other. But he never pushed for headlines, not like attention-grabbing preachers. And then you notice his serenity in verse number 3, where it says, A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. That same passage, what we've just read in Isaiah, is quoted in Matthew 12, 18 through 21. Jesus used the Old Testament scripture. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, or this is said about him, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. That's a very interesting statement. A bruised reed he won't break. In Israel, there were reeds that would grow in the marshy places near the rivers, and the Jews would cut those and make flutes out of them. And a bruised reed was a bruise that had a bad place in it, a soft place in it. So when they had one of those, it was no good, and so they would throw it away. And then also after playing one of these reeds for a while, that it would get soft with saliva, and so they'd throw it away, and they'd just go cut another one. The second metaphor that's used is smoking flax. He will not quench smoking flax. That refers to the wick in a candle. Uh, in their time, uh, a candle's not like ours. It was a little bowl that was filled with oil, and there was a, a wick that was put into it. And when the wick would burn down, it'd get close to that oil and begin to smoke. And so what they would do, they would just pull the wick out and throw it away. Both of those things, smoking flax and, uh, and the bruised reed, these are metaphors for the character of Jesus, for his compassion. Now, you, you look at the way that he dealt with people. What did he do? Did you see Jesus in, in the palace of Herod where he could have gone? He could have gone to talk to Herod king to king because he is the king of kings. He could have gone to the temple, and you don't see him there often, and 
except for other purposes. But he could have gone into the temple and spent all of his time with the erudite priest and he could have talked with them priest to priest. Because after all, he is the great high priest. Or we might say that he could have gone there to speak to them preacher to preacher. But that's not what Christ did. Where do we find him? We find him among common people. He wasn't looking for perfect reeds and for the brightest lights that were in the crowd. No, he had a ministry that was to outcast. And because of that, the self-righteous Pharisees said about him, what is he doing hanging out with publicans and sinners? To which Jesus replied, I came to call sinners to repentance. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus would not throw away what others thought should have been thrown away. Now, to the self-righteous Jew, every illness a person had, every problem that they had, came as a result of some sort of a, of a personal sin. And they were right about that in one way, but not in the way they supposed. What Jesus came to do was to deal with those sins. He came to those that were unlikely. He came to people that others thought never could be saved. And so we find him speaking with tax collectors and, ex, and, uh, and the uh, extortioners and those that are demon-possessed and the prostitutes. I mean, he was always there, found among the common people. And then Jesus himself was also unlikely because he was a king that became a servant in order to make servants to become kings. He was different. You know, I was thinking about this as I was preparing the message that um, it's strange that the great society of Lyndon Johnson has produced such a miserable lot of people. It's been about 50 years since the great society was founded here in our country, or what they called the great society. And the result of that is we have more people on welfare than ever before. That the outlook for our country or people that are in that condition is bleaker than ever before. They're more homeless than ever before. They're more helpless than ever before. And what that tells you is there is no man, there is no president who can help the down and outers but Jesus Christ. He is the God of compassion. Behold his quietness. Behold his serenity. Well, let me hurry because we're going to end up with part three on Wednesday night if we don't get through. So number six is, behold his steadfastness. Verse number four, he shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. And I'm going to put that to you simply. He won't quit. He's never going to become discouraged. He's not going to falter. He's going to stay in there as long as it takes until the job is done. He's never going to burn out in the ministry. No matter the trouble, no matter the opposition and the disappointments and the heartaches of what ministry is like, none of that is going to cause him to turn back. God chose him. Because he knew that he was a bulldog that wasn't going to rest until everything the Father gave him to do was completely finished. And I scarcely think that you really do need a preacher to make the application of this. I think it was Dr. Mark Dever who said, don't worry about the applications. Scriptures have implications, not applications. There, there are some things, I think, that he's telling us in Scripture. Some things are crystal clear. But I get a paycheck to tell you these things, as you know, and so I have to comment on it. Jesus was not going to quit the ministry. We've been studying in Matthew for a long time, and, 
And uh, sometimes it's hard to believe how that Jesus could hang in there with uh, 12 hard-headed men. Oh, surely we ought to see him sometimes throwing up his hands and saying, you hardheads just don't get it. It kind of reminds me of Jorge. Not, not that Jorge's a hardhead, but I mean, Jorge says this. He says, these hard-headed church members just don't get it. Why aren't they here every time that we open up the Word of God? How can you be a Christian and not go to church? I'm going to let Jorge preach that ten-part sermon that he's got on that. I mean, I think it would be good. Uh, he, he's a man who's grateful for his salvation. So he wants to be in church to hear about what Christ has done for him. But you have to think that Jesus must have felt like this a lot. But he never lost his patience. He never gave up on his disciples. Never did Jesus say to them, Now, fellows, this is your last chance. You blow it here. Don't come crying back to me again. That's what Peter thought, didn't he? You remember what Peter said, Matthew 18, 21? Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? And Peter thought, well, surely what a magnanimous gesture that would be. Forgive somebody seven times. I mean, seven times, that's really stretching the limit, isn't it? And what did Jesus say? Peter, you're not even close. Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. And seventy times seven is not a limit. That simply means there is no limit. That's an expression of limitless forgiveness. And, and, and do you know why that God chose Christ? Because he knew he was never going to leave us or forsake us. And that makes no difference how many times you fall. Times you fall, he's always going to stoop down and pick you up. There's always forgiveness for his people. He always intercedes for us. And so God says, behold his steadfastness. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. Well, let me give you just one more. I mean, you're Christians, aren't you? You're good Christians. You're not going to quit on me and go home before I'm finished here, I hope. But I think this one kind of sums up why we look back at the first Christmas and why we would choose to make a message all about Christ. This is number seven. Uh, that would be completeness, and my message is done. Number seven is behold the Savior. Verse number five, thus saith God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and the spirit to them that walk therein. Those are some really, really good verses for the hard heads that wonder who did all this? Who made all of this? Well, there it tells us. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand. And of course, he's speaking here about his servant Christ. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. This section speaks of the Father's determination that his people will be saved. The Father says, I declare this. I am the God who created it all, and this is what I'm going to do. And it's interesting that despite all that I've told you about Christ and how God was so pleased with him, there still are many who think that God failed to do what he said that he would do. 
That what God wanted to do was to save the whole world, but the whole world wouldn't let him. God wanted to bring every single person to heaven, but man has more power than God because he can resist God's sovereign will. And I think that you need to go back and study a little bit harder on that one. Well, notice verse number 6 for a minute. Do you see the word covenant? Do you know that something, something that never happened in the Old Testament? God never had a covenant with Gentiles. You can search the Old Testament over, and you're not going to find a covenant that God made with Gentiles. So you're going to have a hard time proving that God wanted to take everybody to heaven and save all if he didn't even provide them with a covenant. But what God did intend to do through Christ was to establish a new covenant. And I'm not going to talk about that tonight. I just did a couple of weeks ago in the message on the Lord's Supper. But I will say this in relation to verses 6 and 7. Christ would be a light to the Gentiles that never had any light. That promise is repeated in the history in the in the Christmas story when Simeon saw Jesus at the temple. Mary and Joseph had brought him there for circumcision on the eighth day. And there in the temple, Simeon said, For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Well, Simon's prophecy was a shocker to anybody that was within earshot of what he had to say. To mention Gentiles and salvation in the same sentence was like cursing at the top of your lungs if you were in the temple. Remember Paul, sometime later, many years later, in fact, uh, was at the temple and he mentioned Gentiles and how he was supposed to go and speak to Gentiles about salvation and the Jews almost tore him limb from limb. But nevertheless, God chose Christ because he intended to bring salvation to Jew and Gentiles alike. And he foreshadowed that in his own ministry when he spoke about the faith of the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15. And then in John chapter 3, Jesus said, God so loved the world. And that statement means that God loves Jews and Gentiles. But I want you to notice something. Despite those who think that God failed in his plan to save all, God actually said that Christ would do everything that he came to do. What is that? Verse number 7. To open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Do you understand what Scripture means when it talks about opening blind eyes? It means that God gives faith. God was going to open up blinded eyes. He would give them faith to see, and he would justify in order that they might be set free from the bondage of sin. So he didn't try to get people out of prison. He brought people out of prison. That's the very same thing that was promised by the angel Gabriel when he appeared to Joseph at his birth. When, when Gabriel said to Joseph, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. He shall save his people. Not try to save them. Not come to offer them salvation. Not hope that they would receive salvation. He came to save them. And that is perfectly consistent with what Jesus said at the end of his life again when he said that the Father was, he was going to save all that were given to him by the Father. So behold the Savior. He saves. 
Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And I think that there are many people that would like to add a new stanza to that song. And they would like to say, like for it to say this. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus tries to save. Jesus tries to save. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus will save you if you let him. Doesn't sound very good, does it? I don't think we really want to add that verse, do we? But that certainly fits the theology of most Baptists much better. So I, I think maybe you get the point here. Isaiah 42 says, Behold, the Messiah... Behold Jesus. Behold the Savior. He is God's elect. The one that God chose because he knew that he was going to do exactly what he wanted him to do. He would not fail in anything. Nobody can do what Christ did. And that's why no other choice would do. God holds him up and he says, Behold, look at the one I've given you. Look at this one that I've sent. I chose him because I knew that he would be successful. And I know that he'll be successful because I have given him everything that he needs to do his job. He will be successful and he will not let me down. And I'll tell you this, friend, neither will he let you down. Trust him and receive him as Lord and Savior. He is the Christmas Savior. He is the chosen. Behold my servant. Behold my selected, behold his spirit, behold his soundness, behold his serenity, behold his steadfastness, behold the Savior. And the angel said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Father, we come one more time. We say it so often and we mean it so much. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We praise your name, Lord, because you set your affection on us before the foundation of the world. You said that you were going to save us. You knew who we were. You knew us, everyone by name. Everything about us, you know. And then you sent your son into the world to give his life, to accomplish the purpose for which he came. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that in your mercy and grace that you have opened our eyes to the gospel of salvation, that we had nothing to do with it. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We could not be born again without what you have done for us. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin and brings us infallibly to you. Lord, what a great blessing it is to know Jesus Christ. So we thank you, Lord, in this Christmas season. And I do pray that all of us here, we would consider the message, messages that have been preached today and just behold Jesus Christ, to fasten our eyes upon him, to never stop looking to him because he's all the hope that we have. Lord, help us to be fully and only dependent upon him. Speak to your people tonight, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.